Well, hello and welcome to Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham, where Team Needham discusses everything healthcare. I am your host, Sean Needham, along with my producer, Lindsay, and we are streaming live from the Moses Lake Professional Pharmacy Studio today. And today at our midweek podcast, which is normally on Thursday, we have it on Wednesday today. And why is that? That is because tomorrow is Thanksgiving and just a reminder of um, be thankful. Be thankful for so many things. Um, I can tell you what I'm thankful for. I'm thankful for this podcast. I have so much fun doing this podcast and educating and empowering our listeners and viewers on all kinds of things, healthcare. Um, and I thank you for listening and thank you for watching. So with that being said, we stream live every day, every week, uh, usually on Mondays, 1 to 2 p.m. Pacific Standard Time and our midweek podcast on Thursday, 8 to 9 a.m. Um, you can find us on my personal Facebook page, so Sean Needham's personal Facebook page, and the Moses Lake Professional Pharmacy YouTube site. Also, all the podcast forums in a couple days, this will be downloaded to those forums, and you can listen to it there. So iTunes, Google, SoundCloud, and so on. iHeartRadio, we just added not too long ago. So go to those go to those podcasts, your favorite podcast sites, and subscribe. Don't want to miss an episode. And please go to our YouTube site, Moses Lake Professional Pharmacy YouTube. Hit subscribe there so you don't m- uh, miss any episodes. There We are on episode a hundred right now, I think. This is episode a hundred. So um, today we have Dr. Daniel Paul. He is an orthopedic surgeon and he has a little bit different of practice model. You guys that follow our podcast have known that we've had doctors all over the country, mostly primary care doctors that are um, cash only doctors. Uh, and it's called DPC or direct primary care. And they have a monthly membership fee. And always one of the issues that um, they've always had with this cash revolution of healthcare. And, and remember, I've been talking about cash, this, you know, the free market in healthcare and a cash revolution where, you know, the government or an insurance company does not control your health. I've been talking about that for ever on this podcast since uh, since the uh, inception of this podcast. And why do I talk about that? Well, part of the reason is I wrote a book on it. I wrote a book on it called Sickened, How the Government Ruined Healthcare and How to Fix It. And of course, there's a six-step solution in there. And really, in general, the solution is um, free market principles. That's what's going to save healthcare. The government is not going to save it. Uh, the government ruined it. They're not going to save it. Free market solutions. And that means you are in control. And that means the doctor that you choose are in control. So it's important on who you choose. Now, one of the free market solutions with direct primary care was kind of first, um, which makes a lot of sense because primary care kind of has to be first. And then they need a place to refer people if it's something out of their scope. And one of the barriers was has been that um, it was more difficult to um, refer to uh, specialists who, um, you know, specialize in free market solutions and in cash solutions. So we've had a urologist on here. We've had, we are going to have a cash, a cash uh, rheumatologist here next week, I believe. And um, today we have Daniel Paul. He's an orthopedic surgeon and he is a cash orthopedic surgeon down in Colorado. And I, with that, I am going to let him introduce himself and, and um, give a little bit of his history and what his practice does now. Dr. Paul, welcome to our show. Well, John, thanks for having me. I uh, appreciate it. It always helps kind of get the word out about the new ways of doing things. Otherwise, people think that the only way of doing things is the way we've always done them. Right. 
Um, yeah, so a little bit about my practice. I guess to know about my practice, you kind of have to know about the origins of it or, you know, why I'm doing what I'm doing. So um, I broke a lot of bones when I was 14. I had a skid into a tree. I thankfully survived. Um, and since then, you know, I came from a family of engineers. Um, I'm like, hey, this is pretty awesome. They kind of fixed me up. I'm back running around and stuff again. You know, this is what I want to do, right? So I made that decision. I want to be an orthopedic surgeon probably at about 14 or 15. Wow. And most of us that go into medicine, <laughs> yeah, and I don't think that's uncommon. I think people, I may have been on the older side. I mean, I think people know from like they're really young or they kind of have something happen like me or it's like they don't know what to do and their whole family's doctors and they're like, well, I guess I'll just be a doctor. I mean, I've seen that too. <laughs> um but anyways so you know you make this decision when you're 14 or 15 and you know you don't really think about too much and most people that end up going i mean i used to think i was the most stubborn person i knew besides one friend i had and then i went to medical school and i'm i was not the most stubborn person i knew anymore and that other friend i had he also went to medical school um but, well, uh, and especially, but anyway, especially so when, getting, and especially when you got into your residency with with a surgery, you realized you weren't the most stubborn person, right? <laughs> oh my goodness, no, not at all. I mean, that's like a requirement, <laughs> right? Right. That that's kind of like a joke, a but kind of serious. <laughs> yeah. I anyway, mean, so let's, let's, you know, it has its pluses and minuses. But yeah, so you get in, you get in, so get into medical school, do medical school, get into orthopedic surgery residency, you know, which is more competitive, and I do that. And like, look, I never thought I'd be doing this practice. So um, I start the a hand surgery fellowship. I liked hand surgery, and then a couple of things happened. Um, one was I had, well, I'll put it this way. One was I was I was searching for a job at that time, right? That's that's the track that you're going on, and uh, you know, I interviewed like at this place and it's like these guys are all miserable and they're just telling me how much money they made in the early 90s and how bitter they are and i'm like okay that's this is like this is the kind of vibe i'm getting and then as i was looking for a job out in colorado because that's where my wife's from and i've dragged her all over the country at this point you know uh, you know florida ohio new york i've dragged her all over the place it's like i can't find a job or the ones i find are like you know it's a competitive market, so it, it's, uh, you know, you take call for our entire practice every day, or uh, here's your four-month guarantee, and then figure it out on your own, you know, and right. for those that don't know, the standard's two years, and it's very tough to build a full practice in four months, so that was going on, you know, I was super unhappy, um, I kind of had like a family crisis at the same time, which created, and I had this, it all culminated in this existential crisis of, like, what am I doing? Like, what am I doing? You know, you keep going through med school residency. It's like, oh, light at the end of the tunnel. And then there's just another tunnel. And I think that was kind of this realization that, like, I'm just going through these series of tunnels. And, you know, like, what am I doing? Like, am I going to be doing this forever? And so I didn't know what to do. I knew I could quit. So, you know, quit my fellowship, broke lease, moved out here to Colorado. And... I had one friend from medical school in South Florida, and he started a house called practice, like doing internal medicine type stuff. And not only was he happier than anybody I knew, he was doing better financially than anybody I knew. And I'm like, all right, there's something here. And, you know, it was just kind of in this state of desperation and existential crisis. And I said, you know, let's just go for it. I'm going to roll the dice and, you know, we'll see what happens. So that was kind of the origins of it. 
Well, and you know, if you don't mind um, talking a little bit more about about uh, you know doctors being unhappy, I write about it in my book actually. That you know, there's a huge burnout rate for doctors, and I think people on the outside that don't know, they just think that you know doctors going to medical school, they start making good money as as doctors, they just love what they do. And I will tell you, most of the doctors that I know aren't really happy with what they do, especially when they're working inside you know, some big inside the system, so to speak. Now, doctors like yourself and, you know, a lot of the direct primary care doctors that we work with in our pharmacy and we've interviewed in this podcast, they love what they're doing. But, you know, talk a little bit about, about, you know, depression and suicide from doctors that are burnt out. You, you, you have, uh, you mentioned that before in, in, uh, in some of our communications. Yeah. So, um, you know, you take a group of people who are very resilient and, you know, are uh, before they start medical school or, or, or the same or better than their peers as far as kind of mental health. And you kind of put them in an impossible situation where, you know, you're expected to see as many people as you humanly can, you know, while your clinical manager or some CMO that hasn't practiced medicine in 15 years tells you to do that. And you're compressing these visits down to a really short period of time. Now, I believe that you cannot compress these visits down to that short of time without losing quality. And I think that's what doctors are finding. You know, I may know what's going on with somebody really fast, but that doesn't mean they do. And part of the taking care of a person is in what I'm contrasting that to instead of comparing that taking care of body parts. Um, taking care of a person, you need to get to know them and know what they want to do and come up with a treatment plan together and have good communication. And that, and part of that's education as well. You know, how many times does someone go to the doctor and like, oh, what, what did the doctor say? Uh, I don't know, something with my arm. What's, what do you need to do? I don't know, surgery or something? It's next <laughs> week, you know? It's, it's unbelievable. But that's all the system cares about. There, you, you know, there's, there's no compensation for education or that aspect of it. And they just want you to see as many people as humanly possible. So now you've got a situation where you're running through people, not developing a relationship, which is why you went in it. And you feel, and you know you're delivering substandard care. Because how can you not be? You know, if you give me uh, three times, you know, triple the amount of, if I'm seeing someone in seven minutes, it's going to be short. If I get 45 minutes or as long as I want, I'm going to do, they're going to feel like, I'm going to do a much better job and they're going to think so too. So you have a situation where doctors have essentially lost all the control of their practice, but yet they keep all the responsibility. Nobody wants to touch that. No hospital administrator is going to go. You know what? I'll t I'll take the I'll take the blame for all these things you do. Now they leave that alone. So it's this it's this pressure cooker, and you do not get any system improvement either. The only system improvement you get is reimbursement related, and it's usually for the worse. So, you know, the insurance companies are incentivized not to pay, and that's just true. They can say whatever they want. That's the truth. So what they'll do is they add a lot of hoops to jump through. And as time goes on, there's more hoops that get added and you need to hire more hoop jumpers. And all of a sudden you have this crazy EMR and things you need to do. Look, doctors don't hate technology. If you look at us, we all have iPhones or smartphones. We're not Luddites. We don't like EMRs because they're billing. They're meant for billing. They're not meant for note-taking. So you're turning the doctor into a biller. And that's where all these click boxes are. That's why the medical assistant goes in the room before and that's not to really add any value most of the time. I mean, that's just filling out click boxes and taking your vitals and stuff that, you know, may not matter all the time. Like for orthopedics, we don't, we don't do anything with that information. It's just for billing. So it's this whole billing machine and they get stuck in it. So, you know, 
So anyways, the only system system changes you get are from, insur- or from re- reimbursement related. If insurance companies came out and tomorrow said, we're not going to pay you unless you rate all of your notes while standing on your left leg only, the next day there'd be somebody in the clinic saying, you need to stand on your left leg while writing these notes and document <laughs> it. Okay? And like that change comes immediately. But any change you try to get for actually bettering care, you know, it's very impossible. It's very difficult in that system. You know, I got trouble a lot as an intern. That's not for like medical reasons. It's because I see system issues that I thought were terrible. And I'd say, hey, this is pretty bad. And they say the same thing. Um, this is the way we've always done it. And, you know, they just, and it's not just that. They really beat it into you. So, you know, you come out saying, oh, man, I just don't want to make any waves. You know, let me just keep my head down. And they take advantage of that. Um, and I've been successful by making waves and kind of going back to my baseline here. But anyways, to answer your question, I mean, to go back, you know, doctors, are, it's, it's an impossible situation. It's a situation in that they're getting run ragged and, uh, you know, the system's telling, hey, you're not resilient enough. Like it's a you problem, but it's not. It's a system problem. You know, these are some of the most resilient people around, you know, um, you know, working 24 plus hour shifts for years on end can delay gratification for a decade. I mean. You know, you're talking resilient people, and then the system, they're, they're running them ragged, and, and then they're getting burnt out and saying, hey, you know, it's your fault. You're burning out. And then, unfortunately, a lot of them don't, you know, they get depressed. Um, I've had before, you know, in myself, and that's part of my existential crisis. Um, but you, you feel like there's no way out, and it just gets worse and worse. And then a lot of, unfortunately, all these doctors, you know, they end up committing suicide. It's the highest suicide rate of any profession right now. Wow. Um, and then everyone's questioning why. Well, you know, we know why. Um, but, you know, they treat you as a commodity, these systems. They just want you to produce, you know, like you're a widget, you know, like people come in and you produce medical care. And, you know, you'll even have that in practices where they'll be like, oh, this is our most productive doctor. That's a, <laughs> not saying it's their best doctor. It's your most productive doctor. And that's all they care about. And, you know, if you're booking surgery after surgery and filling up the schedule, you know, they love you. Does that mean those surgeries are necessary? I don't know. I mean, I've heard stories of, you know, prominent surgeons where, you know, the, the CMO will go to them and say, hey, you know, why aren't you doing more surgeries? Why aren't you doing this guy? Well, it's not indicated. Well, you need to expand your indications. And if you don't believe me, I'll tell you this story, which is kind of a really probably one of the craziest stories I know in this kind of topic. It was a family med doctor who was working out in Kansas, I think somewhere in Kansas, and she was doing deliveries. And I don't know where she was specifically. But anyways, she had a nurse anesthetist with her so she could do C-sections. And that guy was supposed to be on call, I guess, you know, 24 hours. But I guess on his own, he decided he wasn't going to do that. So when she would get someone that was high-risk pregnancy or C-section, she would kind of send them down the road to, uh, you know, to the hospital system. And I think, uh, you know, the CMO or CEO came up to her and said, why are you sending all these, you know, we're paying, we're, you know, we're not making money on the delivery, you know, why are you sending all these, you know, pregnant mothers away? And she says, hey, this guy's not coming into work and I can't do these, I can't do these C-sections safely. To which he said, well, you should inject lidocaine and cut the baby out. Wow. Seriously. Yeah, that's cool. out there. You know, wow. these people are in charge of the culture of these uh, systems. So, you know, she quit, which was good. But I mean, 
those are the types of people you get people that are so business minded and lose touch with all humanity and you get things like that. That's really scary. And I'm really not that surprised because that's kind of where medicine has come to. And unfortunately, Dr. Paul, um, there's a lot of doctors that don't stand up to that stuff. I mean, fortunately you found a solution. A lot of other doctors do too, and they just leave the system because I think in a lot of ways, the system is so broken, I don't think you can fix it. I think the way to fix the system is to get out of the system, So, which is exactly what you did. did. And sometimes the doctors that get out of the system, they, don't, they quit practicing medicine. And that's sad because there's a lot of doctors, a lot of good doctors that have probably left medicine because of that. So tell us what your solution is. Your solution was you wanted to still practice medicine, but on your own terms. And that's easy orthopedics. So tell us a little bit about easy orthopedics. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, you know, when I started, I knew that like, yeah, I can't take insurance. I just, I can't do it. I can hire five people just to collect. And then all of a sudden you're trying to run a high volume based practice and look, I'm never going to do it as good as those guys. And I don't want to. So right away, if, if you want to get out of the system, you cannot take insurance. You just cannot be associated. with it. Um, so right away, that'll drop your overhead tremendously. Um, now, the next thing I did was I started up and I'd still do mostly house calls. So then I don't even have an office. And here's what a lot of docs don't really realize is that all the regulations that we have, they're reimbursement related. They're not legal regulations. Right. You legally need a medical license. You know, and obviously you want to practice in the standard of care. Um, you know, and, and some states require mal malpractice, you know, which is here and I have it, of course. Um, but all this other junk meaningful use, all that, that's junk. It's all reimbursement related. Once you remove yourself from these reimbursement systems, that stuff is gone. You can practice like you want to practice. Um, and that's really nice. Um, but yeah, so instead of focusing on, well, how do I get as many patients as I can? Let me buy the most expensive surgical machine and, and market that. I'm looking at the other side of it. Well, how do I decrease my overhead as long as I can? So A, not taking insurance. Um, you know, be doing house calls. And actually what I found is that since, you know, I'd see people, other docs around town and they say, Hey, well, could you see this patient at my office? I'm like, sure. Now all of a sudden I have like four or five offices I go to. And if they're like, Hey, if you need to see someone on your own here, just go ahead. So like, I kind of have office space that I'm not really paying for it because when I'm there it's value added. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, I carry everything around to do casting, splinting, injections, suturing, you know, kind of basic stuff that you need would do in an ER. Obviously, surgical stuff that needs to be done in a surgery center. Um, so that decreased overhead a lot. And then there's also little other things. You know, if, if there's an inexpensive way to do something that's good, I'm going to find it. Um, so like electronic medical records. You know, even some DPC docs will say, well, yeah, I pay $300 a month for this, which is better than the $2,000 I paid before. If you're paying $24,000 a year for your EMR, something is seriously wrong. Rip off. Um, so what I found is like, you know, what do you really need for that? You need um, a uh, you need something that's HIPAA compliant that basically can store notes for you. So what I use is um, through Google, it's called G Suite, and uh, you pay for that. And um, you, you can make, sign a business agreement to make it HIPAA compliant. So I have a HIPAA compliant Google Drive um, with unlimited storage, and that's $12 a month per user. So <laughs> I have two users. It's me and my wife, right? That's the only people in the business. For a while, it was just me. So that's $24 a month. 
Um, and it's great. You know, you can make template all your notes out. You can do whatever you want. It's super efficient. Um, and, you know, it has the whole email capability that comes with Gmail. So, um, so there's just, you know, I think in the medical field, things are expensive just when you attach the word medical to it. It's almost like a wedding stuff, you know, like you can get catering for a wedding and catering for an event, same food, once the wedding is double. You know, so if you can <laughs> kind of get out of that sphere, you can end up kind of being all right. I'm not going to these expensive, you know, EMRs and, you know, the, you're paying for the billing. That's what you're paying for with these EMRs. They're saying, hey, you can write our, you can write your crappy notes in our system and with no subject, no text, just all click boxes. And we'll translate that into bill and insurance. We'll pay and we'll stay up to date on all these codes, which, by the way, you have to pay for because the AMA owns all those codes. Most, some people may not know that. The codes are owned by the American Medical Association and happen. So your EMR, and I think the doctors itself are paying licensing fees to use these codes. So it's crazy. We've we've actually through this podcast, one of the great things about this podcast is I've learned a lot by talking to um, doctors like yourself. And I learned that that the AMA, you know, they own the CPT codes and they get that's where the majority of their money comes from. So if people think that the AMA wants to fix our medical billing problems, our medical system, absolutely not. They are so deep involved. Um, it's probably the only thing that's keeping them in business because I think only 15% of doctors are members of the AMA now. So most doctors don't take the AMA that seriously. The AMA is making money off, you know, basically being... Um, an accessory to the crime in the system and CPT codes, as you were kind of alluding to, the only reason for a CPT code it, or an ICD-9 code for that matter is really not, is really for billing. That's the only reason. It has nothing to do with taking care of the patient necessarily. Yeah, no, that's definitely true with the CPT codes. And actually the ICD-9 codes are international. I think ICD-10 maybe you have to look into this. I think it came out in the 90s, and it was just a classification of diseases for epidemiological purposes, and then we kind of co-opted it uh, into our billing system. That's why you'll see strange codes like, you know, someone get bitten by a cow or something, you know, because everyone in the system is like, why the hell would they have a code for that? And it's like, well, some epidemiologist wants to know how many people get bit by cows, so I don't know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. All these sort of strange things. <laughs> but yeah, I agree. It is kind of part of the dumpster fire that is our health system at the moment. So tell us a little bit about easy orthopedics. So let's say um, patient breaks his leg. Um, how I, I know that's a very, very general term. Let's say he breaks his leg. It's a non-compound fracture. How would you deal with that? Could you deal with that in your office? Um, well, you know, I think the, the first thing is, is, you know, they, they contact us and uh, we talk and look, if their femur is broken in half or they have a broken hip, you know, I'm going to tell them to go to the ER, right? Like that's something you need to get taken care of. But, um, if it's, if it's not something like that, um, then, you know, we tell them the transparent, you know, price, you know, they pay it, like you get my bag and I'm off and I go see, them. um, you know, take care of what they need to. And then, um, I give them, uh, I give them my personal number, you know, because when someone wants to contact the doctor now in the system, what do you do? You call, you call the office front desk. You probably wait a minute, get transferred to the medical assistant if you're lucky, who will ask the doctor, and then the doctor tells the medical assistant and get back gets back to you. And that usually doesn't happen right away. So 
you know, it's a terrible system. And the doctor's got to answer the question anyway. So I give them my personal number. They can call or text with any questions. Um, you know, if it's something simple like casting steroid injection, I can do it there. Um, you know, otherwise, if it's surgery, then you're kind of talking about, you know, what, is this a necessary surgery? What happens if I do it? What happens if I don't do it? And then if they want to go proceed with it, and you know, it's, it's cash-based elective surgery, um, you know, set up, you know, at a at a surgery center, at an assigned uh, time and, and date. Um, but it's pretty simple. I mean, there's not, you know, and they pay me the time of service. I mean, that's why I call it easy orthopedics. It's it's really not that complicated. They just call me and I come out and see them. Or if they don't want to, I can see them at the office. Or if they need an X-ray or an MRI, I'll see them at one of the offices I go to, which is also an imaging center, which has cash-based pricing too. Awesome. So. Uh, you know, for instance, I saw this uh, girl who had a skiing accident recently and it looked like she may have torn her ACL. She did. She didn't, thankfully, but I was able to see her same day, get the MRI ordered next day. And then, you know, tell her shortly afterwards, Hey, it's not your ACL, but you do have a, uh, a non-displaced fracture that doesn't require surgery, you know, and, and this and the other thing. And I think the total cost of that will be, you know, probably less than a thousand dollars. I mean, you could pay a more MRI? for the MRI alone if you have insurance. So MRI and everything and your consultation fee and everything was less than a thousand dollars for that visit. Is that correct? Yeah. And that was most of that's probably the MRI cost. And, uh, that's me right. going to her house and you're talking same day visit next day MRI. And if this was insurance, she would have had to pay more. Um, if she had a high deductible, she would pay more for just the MRI and it would take weeks. And then I would have to do an hour long prior authorization to get it approved. Yep. Um, so you know, it's just so much easier and it's so much better. I mean, a lot of people still think like, well, I need to have insurance, but it's not, it's not what it used to be. It wasn't two decades ago where they just kind of covered everything and everything was all right. I mean, you, you have a high deductible, the network's paper thin, the billing shenanigans have gotten crazy. And like, you're just going to end up, you know, financially worse off and health wise worse off too, because your care is going to be, you're going to get, the doc's not going to spend as long as we, with you. The care is going to be worse and uh, it's going to be a lot more expensive, I think. Yeah. I, um, I mean, I, you know, I most think things, we, right. If you have something catastrophic. Right. Correct. Correct. I, I think for catastrophic stuff, we need some kind of, you know, insurance. That's what it was meant for in the first place. But for your routine stuff, even like you're talking about broken legs and things like that, I just don't think it's worth it. Um, because like you say, you're, you're better off paying cash. I mean, the insurance system is ripping people off. And that is one of the goals of this podcast, to realize, to educate and empower people that their health insurance, there's no such thing as good health insurance. There's not. I mean, honestly, the best you can hope for is you don't have some kind of catastrophic thing that the health insurance has to cover. But there is no thing, such thing as good insurance anymore. There's just not. Um, because the routine stuff, you're better off paying cash. Finding a doctor like yourself, an imaging center, um, like you um, talk about and, and pay cash because you'll save a lot more money and a lot more time. And how much is time worth? All right. I mean, it would be the equivalent if you had car insurance for your, like it would be the equivalent of car insurance covered every aspect of your car. It would basically be like, well, we'll pay for a new pair of tires only after you've gotten a pair of tires. And we'll pay for an oil change only after you've gotten three oil changes in a six month period. And it's $100 a month. But next month, it's going to go up to $120 for no reason whatsoever. I mean, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> when people think of cash, right, and I think this is something that I've learned, it, it's really not so much cash, it's just not insurance, right? I don't, have, I don't have the capacity to deal with insurance. So 
And cash comes in different forms, right? So some of it is, is what I just described, me going cash pay patient, call me up, I go see them. You know, some of it also, I, uh, I, I work on medical liens as well. So I found out that, uh, um, you know, someone's involved in a car accident and I'm actually a pretty decent fit for them because most of their injuries are musculoskeletal. And I'll hold a medical lien for a year and a half or so and then get paid when the case settles. Um, so to me, yes, I have to wait a long time. And, you know, if the case doesn't settle, then I won't get paid. But I don't have to deal with the insurance shenanigans. Right. Um, so that's also cash. Or if I'm trying to get into the employer side of business as well, I can think I could, you know, you talk about musculoskeletal cost containment. I mean, I think that could be huge business. And, you know, that's cash also. So you need to be creative in finding ways to just not take insurance, but it's not just strictly here. Let me see you. Okay. You pay me. I mean, that's, that's part of it, but I think I've learned that there's more evidence, you know, than just that. Um, you Absolutely. know, are you talking about, you know, medical legal stuff and record reviews and things like that, at least for an orthopedic surgeon, that's the source of cash as well, or independent medical. Things. I mean, these are all just different avenues that you supplement your practice with. Absolutely. So tell, we were talking a little bit um, before the show about um, hospitals denying admitting privileges to physicians. And I think back when I used to be on a hospital board, a publicly elected hospital board, I think we called that economic credentialing um, is what we were talking about because they just don't want to admit the surgeon partly because they don't want competition. Can you explain that a little bit? Oh, yeah. So this is something that I had no idea about before I started my own practice, right? You're in training or you get a job at a hospital, they just paved the way for you to get admitting privileges. Anyways, so when I started, I would go to a surgery centers near where I live and I'd say, hey, uh, I'd like to bring my cash-based surgery practice here. You know, you talk to the CEO of the surgery center. He says, phenomenal. That's great. Just go get admitting rights at this gigantic hospital system that's, you know, down the road. So... <laughs> So two problems. One is I don't want it because I don't want to take all. I don't want to be part of the system. I don't want them benefiting off of me because you know what? They don't benefit the community. You know, they, uh, they're gouging people um, and they're sending people to collections and they're nonprofits. So you have a nonprofit not paying taxes, also sending people to collections and bankrupting them. And you got, how is that right? Anyways, forgetting yeah, that aspect I agree. of it. Let's say yeah, I didn't want to if I did want admitting privileges, um, you know, somewhere on that credentialing board is another orthopedic surgeon, all right, in the area of practicing. And they'll just know just because it's anti-competitive. It has nothing to do with your skill level or anything. I talked to a surgery center out in uh, St. St. George in, in Utah, and they do cash. And they were telling me that they can't get their Mayo-trained joint surgeon uh, privileges at the local hospital. Um, you know, why? Because there's a local orthopedic group that's blocking them. Um, you know, and then you listen to that, uh, there's this podcast called, uh, Dr. Death, which is about this, um, neurosurgeon down in Texas who actually ended up going to prison for really just maiming people. He got admitting privileges even after he was maiming people. You know, you had, uh, like, uh, another neurosurgeon in that area, um, who talked to the CMO and be like, you can't give this guy privileges. He's really hurting people. He's like, well, we don't really care. We're going to do it anyways. Um, so that just goes to show you that it's not about you. It's, uh, it's an anti-competitive thing. And a lot of these, uh, you know, these surgery centers say, hey, well, unless you, if you don't have those, then, you know, you can't work here because it's part of our bylaws, which is based on the Medicare requirement, which they actually repealed a year ago. So, you know, I've heard stories. I mean, that's, that's 
that's the ecosystem. It's anti-competitive. If you're not a surgeon, you probably have no idea about it. And I've also heard a story of a urologist who did get admitting privileges by being in the military. And he went to go start his own practice. And as soon as he had one complication, he was crucified. And they removed his privileges and his ability to practice. So it's the hospital's way of just sticking their fingers in all these surgical centers and just keeping control. I found a way around that, but it was not easy to do. I basically had to find a center that didn't have, doesn't take Medicare or Medicaid and didn't have requirements and it's been fine. But um, yeah, that's, that's certainly out there. It's anti-competitive in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely it is. I think hospitals are, they do whatever they can to protect their own monopolies and that's what hospitals are. Most hospitals are monopolies and they use certificate of needs and they use economic credentialing and things like that to to protect their monopoly. And honestly, if they had to, if they had to compete in a free market, in a true free market, most hospitals wouldn't be around. They are some of the most inefficient businesses you know, they're allowed to be inefficient because of the billing system that they take advantage of. They've really, really created a cartel and they're in bed with the insurance companies and big pharma and it's just a big collusion and hospitals love it. So, you know, that's that's kind of, I, I, I echo what, what you're definitely saying. So do you have a, um, what would, I, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but I guess I'm going to, sure. so pricing. Yeah. So, you know, MCL, uh, an MCL repair. Let's say you had to do an MCL repair, elective surgery, pretty much. Um, what do you know? What would that cost somebody um, out the door? Your fee, anesthesia, surgery, everything. I imaging if they need it. Uh, well, most MCLs are on their own, so I probably wouldn't be treating that operatively. And at my surgery center right now, I don't have oh, – well. You know, I, I haven't done one of those, so I, I don't know. I really couldn't tell you. Um, I could tell you. It would, I would just have to figure it out. Um, and part of me being in the surgery center, it was built as getting my own equipment. So, I, you know, I'm still in the process of doing that. So it's more, more small tissue uh, things right at the moment. But I could definitely give you a biting price that it would not go over. Um, but, uh, you know, these large centers that have been around for a while have more established pricing in that regard. So yeah. if you had an MCL and you said it wanted to operate it on, I would say, uh, let me take a look at that. It probably doesn't need surgery. <laughs> that's interesting. Um, that's interesting because there's a lot of MCLs that are operated on. So you're basically telling me that there's probably a lot of unnecessary MCL surgeries. There's a lot of unnecessary lots of surgeries. And that's because yeah. as a surgeon, these systems want to, they want you to operate and they want you to operate as much as you can. So they don't care if the indications are bad. And over time, these, that's how these guys make money. I mean, they make money by operating and a lot of them are really good, but over time, uh, some surgeons or indications can get loose where uh, they're doing surgeries that may aren't entirely necessary. And uh, that's like one of them. Um, well, I, I appreciate you as a surgeon sharing that because I don't think a lot of people realize that. Um, they, they just wash their hands of, of um, taking care of their own medical care and say, oh, well, this doctor's licensed. He's a surgeon. He works for XYZ Hospital. He's got to be good. They don't realize that doctors will actually perform surgeries that aren't necessary. I write about this in my book that you know, 80% of, of medical procedures are probably unnecessary. And why do a lot of people do that? Why do a lot of surgeons do unnecessary surgeries? Here's why, in my opinion. Oh, well, your insurance will cover it. And so they can do an unnecessary surgery, correct? 
Yeah, I mean, that's they're justifying their own existence, really. And look, look, it, it's not entirely the surgeons. You know, if they're not operating, they'll lose their block time and will essentially get fired or pushed out. So there's that aspect on it, and that's how they make money. And I've seen this before. When a surgeon says, um, I'll give you an example. Uh, so one time I saw uh, part of my later training, I saw a patient with a mallet finger, right? This is a little, the tendon comes off the end of the finger. If there's no large bony involvement, which there wasn't in this case, you can treat it with a splint. Um, you know, and so when the patient's in there, the doc goes, well, we can do surgery. And what she hears is, oh, I need surgery. So now that's two surgeries, a surgery to put this unnecessary pin in the finger and the surgery to take it out. Um, you know, you get stuff like that or, you know, the uh, same, same surgeon, there's this girl who had a, uh, it sounded like she had a shoulder dislocation and which is usually a good indication for surgery in somebody that age exam lined up, you know, it was like, okay, so I order an MRI. Um, and then uh, he's like, no, we don't need it. And I'm like, okay, that's new, new to me, but all right. Um, get in the shoulder, uh, no tear. I'm like, all right, so what are we going to do? Oh, we'll just tighten it up. And then you start getting crap like that, um, where it's like they're not penalized for that sort of thing. And the system, they made money for the hospital. They made money for everybody. So, well, you know, they're going to keep doing stuff like that. Right. You know, an MRI right. in that patient could have said, oh, we thought there was an anterior labral tear. Guess what? There's not. You don't need surgery. Not, I don't know. Let's just do it. I mean, it, that's kind of where you're at right now i mean it's you know and you have five ten minutes with a patient yeah i mean look there's certain things that need surgery right someone's got a broken leg you know you know broken hip they've got terrible arthritis in the knee or hip you know like bad trauma carpal tunnel syndrome for a long i mean there's things that are like yes you need surgery go get surgery but there's things that are kind of on the line and maybe they don't need surgery and uh, you're going to someone who makes all their money off of doing surgery so you know think about that and especially if you're a workers comp oh my god so workers' comp pays more than any other insurance. Why? Because they have to. Because workers' comp patients have a huge uh, conflict of interest in the sense that, you know, they're not going to work and they get paid and that sort of thing. So um, pays more than any other insurance. So, man, the doctor sees that, the dollar signs in their eyes. Those guys get cut on all the time. Wow. They're probably wow. unnecessarily a lot of times. So, wow. You'll see a workers' comp patient that'll have like six shoulder scopes or something. It's unbelievable. Wow. Of course, they're not better, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. Wow. Well, thanks for thanks for sharing that story. So, well, uh, we do have a question from a doctor, Doctor Jared Wallen. He's actually a urologist in Florida. Um, let's see. Do you have a source for the eighty percent of surgeries being unnecessary? Can you expand on this? That seems quite high. Certainly not in my practice. All surgeries are geared towards solving a problem and providing value to a patient. Well, Dr. Wallen, I think I use the 80%, so I don't want to put any numbers into Dr. Paul, that's for sure. I will say where I got that number from was from an orthopedic surgeon. The orthopedic surgeon is Dr. Sean Baker. He was on our uh, podcast earlier in February, I believe. He was an orthopedic surgeon in Arizona. And he started, this was probably about 10 years ago, he started talking to people about changing their diets 
And all of a sudden, when they changed their diets, they didn't need surgery anymore. He actually got blackballed from his group of surgeons and the local hospital because he wasn't doing enough surgeries, kind of like what Dr. Paul is talking about. And um, he had, they, they, they filed unnecessary complaints, so to speak, and he had to fight for his license and all that kind of stuff. And when I asked him on our show, he also, if you look him up, Sean Baker, he's also the author of The Carnivore Diet. It's a great book. Obviously, it is what it says it is. He, he taught his patients how to eat keto. They got better. And then he transitioned, them, transitioned more into carnivore. He wrote a book on it. He's got a whole program on how to teach people to eat carnivore only. And what he's found is that a lot of people's orthopedic problems would heal when they went carnivore. And I asked him the numbers and to tell you the truth, you know, I'm a pharmacist. I'm not a doctor or North Peak surgeon for that, you know, for sure. And I asked him, and I thought the number was going to be 50%. I said, Dr. Baker, how many of your surgeries are, are, could probably be prevented if they change their diet and lifestyle? I was expecting 50% because when we look at the regular medical system, as far as chronic disease, like diabetes and high blood pressure and, and all those other diseases that are related to lifestyle, you know, most of those can probably be healed by 80%. But I thought, this is this is hell. this is orthopedics. I mean, you need surgery. You need surgery now. And he's the one that gave me that number. So we can share that podcast with you if you're interested in listening um, more to it. He's the one that gave me the number of 80% of orthopedic surgeries can be prevented if people change their lifestyle. I will let Dr. Paul go on to this. Dr. Paul, how many people have knee problems, hip problems, and they just need to lose weight? Can you help me on that one? Well, I can't, I don't know if I could give you a percentage, you know, the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons, the only thing that has like really great evidence for working is, 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 uh, losing weight. And that's kind of a, you know, people assume that, oh, I lose five pounds, but you don't realize when you're going upstairs, that's six times the force of your weight through your knee, you know, so that five pounds could be 30 pounds and you lose 50 pounds, you know, you know, you're looking at what, 300 pounds through your knee. Um, wow. So there's that mechanical aspect of it. And then there's also, as we're learning more, you know, arthritis is not just a simple wear and tear thing. There seems to be an inflammatory component, which we're learning about. And actually fat cells themselves historically were thought of as just an energy store, which they are, but they also secrete hormones um, called adipokines. So there's a thought that they lead for this inflammation as well, because when someone's uh, overweight, you not only see arthritis in the weight-bearing joints, you also see it in non-weight-bearing joints, such as the hand. So I can't say how much would be would be lessened by losing weight, but it would probably be a significant portion. And then there's also patients that have arthritis that isn't painful. We don't really know why that is. Um, but, you know, there's, this, there's part of people, you get an x-ray, wow, it looks like terrible arthritis. So like, yeah, it doesn't bother me. So you leave it alone. So it's hard to say. I mean, the surgeries that I'm talking about being unnecessary are not lifestyle related. They're more, you know, this is the situation or trauma or something like that. And like surgically, it should be treated conservatively, you know, by any standard. And they're not. You know, these are things like you should not be doing an MRI, a, a shoulder scope on like a 22 year old shoulder without an MRI. You know, so I don't know what percentage that is. Some, most docs are very good and don't do that kind of stuff. But the ones that do, you know, they're out there. Yeah, for sure. Well, so um, we're about winding up our, our uh, show today, Dr. Paul. And speaking of 
Speaking of inflammation and arthritis, we will have Dr. Diana um, Garnita on next week on, on our midweek podcast. And she's a rheumatologist and she's a cash only rheumatologist um, doing kind of what you do, got out of the system so she could take care of her patients better. So she will be talking about a lot of the inflammatory components and um, not just drug treatments, um, but we're going to talk about a lot of the lifestyle treatments for arthritis and those types of inflammatory or, or rheumatological diseases. So stay tuned for that next Thursday, um, 8 to 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. So, Dr. Paul, um, what what do you have a passion for? What 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 drives you? My my real driver right now is to, I want to I want to disrupt. I want to disrupt really bad. You know. This medical system is, you can't fix it. I, you said that before, and I totally agree with you. It's like a structure fire in the house. You just need to build a new house. And part of that is people doing what I'm doing, um, you know, or the DPC docs. And this isn't going to come from top level, you know, bureaucratic type stuff. It's going to come from bottom level people like me just deciding out to participate. But yeah, my goal is to disrupt. I want these insurance companies and hospital systems to realize that, you know, you're raising your premiums every year and the, the product you provide is not good. And I want people to start leaving those companies, you know, in mass and then say, hey, wait a second, maybe we should actually uh, create a better product, you know, instead of just, you know, ripping people off, ripping companies off, you know, companies paying what, 20000 per employee per year. You're not getting a raise next year. You know why? Because the raise money you got is going towards your insurance premiums. You know, people aren't super privy to that, but I think it's totally messed up. And they, they, need, they need to be disrupted. And uh, I think they will be. It just will take time. I love it. I love it. Disruptors. Um, sometimes disruptors aren't very popular, but I'll tell you, that's what really drives change in, in, in all kinds of systems. So I appreciate you being on today, Dr. Paul. Um, I appreciate all the expertise you provided to our, to our uh, listeners and viewers. You are definitely um, helping, um, you know, cast our goal, which is to educate and empower consumers that they're in charge of their own health. So we're streaming your website there uh, as, as, we, as we speak. And I so appreciate you being on. As always, you've been listening to Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham. Tune in Monday, 1 to 2 p.m. We will have uh, we will have uh, Sam Tran. He used to work for Big Pharma. He believes uh, Big Pharma is uh, not out for our best health and health and wellness needs needs and wants. He uh, so he left Big Pharma and he he's going to talk about lifestyle and. Um, changes how people can um, create their own create their own health by by lifestyle changes. So tune into that Monday, one to two p.m. Uh, have a wonderful Thanksgiving tomorrow. Wonderful long holiday. I appreciate everybody li listening to you. Thank you so much.